You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to episode 59 of Ask Concussion Doc. Do you have a concussion? Do you have headaches? Thank you, Sam. Are you a clinician who treats concussion patients who have headaches? If so, then this episode is for you. It's also for me because I actually woke up with a headache and I kind of still have one over in this kind of general region. Um, So we've had a ton of questions lately regarding Botox treatments for concussion. And we've also, like I think myself personally, I probably received five (laughs) direct messages to my Instagram inbox regarding Botox and people asking my opinion as to whether or not they should get Botox or not. Um, And we've also had a lot of questions come in regarding headaches and what's the best treatment for headaches. And so we decided to lump it all in. Today's episode is going to be covering post-concussion headaches mostly from a chronic or PCS standpoint, not necessarily from an acute concussion standpoint. Um, So here we are, concussion-related headaches. Headaches are one of the most common symptoms following concussion. Um, Of any other symptom that's out there, headaches is is the most frequent one that's always cited. Um, Why is this? What causes concussions? Um, or sorry, what causes headaches following concussion? According to the International Classification of Headache Disorders, there's over 150 different types of headaches. So I'm obviously not gonna go in depth and cover all of them, but what I'm gonna try and do is break down the most common ones that I see in clinical practice as well as from a research standpoint. Um, This is going to hopefully give the clinicians out there a better understanding as to what might be going on with their patient's headaches, but also to help provide the patients with a little bit of understanding about what might be causing your headaches and where you might be able to go to find care. Um, Like I said, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, right? 150 headaches, I definitely don't have time to do that, nor do I even understand that many of them. These are the ones I know. Okay, so first off, uh, the first one that we're gonna talk about is what I'm gonna call physiologic. This this one is related to potential blood flow impairment or um, potential dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system. And the reason why I'm lumping this in here, I'm not sure if this is an actual cause of headache, but I do know that the treatment helps relieve headache symptoms okay now whether or not that's a secondary thing or whether or not it's actually due to the improvement in the physiologic systems or the autonomic systems or the blood flow systems uh, or whether or not it's due to kind of a secondary effect but nonetheless uh, there's been a lot of research that's looked at exercise as a form of treatment for concussion and persistent concussion symptoms And generally the way this is done is you go to a clinician who has training in concussion that could administer what's called the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test. With this test, we gradually increase your rate of exertion to try and find out what your kind of breaking point is. And what we're looking for during that test is to try and find out not 
if you get symptoms, because generally people doing this test have symptoms, we're looking to find out what point the symptoms get worse. Because the treatment for these types of dysfunctions is exercise. But if you're gonna get symptomatic at, let's say, a heart rate of 150 beats per minute, well, I don't want you exercising at 150 beats per minute every day because you're just gonna be flaring yourself up and making yourself worse. So I wanna find out what your breaking point is and I wanna lower your heart rate threshold down so that you're actually working out at a rate that's safe that's not going to exacerbate things and make things worse. And what you do is you do this exercise every single day, this what's called sub-symptom threshold exercise, lower than your threshold, and you do this every day for a week or two, and you come back in and we retest you. After we retest you, we can hopefully establish a higher threshold. Once we establish a higher threshold, well now you're working out at a higher heart rate. And again, it's safe because we've established what the threshold is and we're staying below that threshold. The goal, however, is to gradually work you up to a point where you can have full physical exertion with no increase in any of your symptoms, at which point we can let you go and do whatever type of exercise activity you want to. At the same time this is going on, what you notice is that people's symptoms are rapidly decreasing. Once they get better blood flow, more activity, more, you know, exercise is good for all sorts of things like endorphins and sleep and inflammation and all these other things, the symptoms of concussion, including headache, start to drop. So I'm not necessarily sure that when I call this physiologic headache, that the headache itself is due to the blood flow abnormality that you have or the autonomic nervous system regulation issues. But what I do know is that the treatment of subsymptom threshold exercise helps a lot of people with post-concussion headaches. Now, that could be due to the other things, the inflammation reduction, the better sleep, um, uh, the endorphin release, um, etc. right? So we don't know if that is a cause-effect relationship, but we do know that the treatment is helpful. Number two, inflammation. So after a concussion, there's going to be inflammation. After any injury, there's going to be inflammation. Inflammation, particularly in the brain, can cause headaches. Um, this can be exacerbated or prolonged. And the way that I feel on this is because what happens if there's, there's inflammation that happens inside the brain or any tissue whatsoever, that inflammation tends to cause more inflammation to come to the area. So if you have you know, damage to some healthy tissue, you get these inflammatory markers in the brain cell, they're called microglia, and they become activated. When the microglia become activated, they release these other little markers that attract more inflammation to the area. And that inflammation can start to actually damage some of the healthy tissue. And then that sends out its inflammatory mediators and then more inflammation can come to the area. And so you get this kind of cyclical inflammatory response that can continue months after the injury has taken place. So there's a few ways that we can squash this. One is potentially anti-inflammatory medications, right? These are your NSAIDs, your non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or maybe even something more potent to squash inflammation and shut that down. The other way, which I tend to gravitate towards more frequently, is diet. The diet that we're currently eating, let's call it the North American diet, is shit. It's filled with preservatives and all sorts of things that promote inflammation. 
the big inflammatory things you've often probably heard from other things are gluten, dairy, uh, sugar, alcohol, and in some cases eggs. There's other things that may be more subtle, but sometimes people's bodies react to these foods. You don't even know that um, you have an issue with it until the, the injury occurs. There's this system that's called the gut-brain axis. The gut itself has some permeability to it, meaning it allows things through the gut lining, right? Your intestinal system. When you eat food, it's breaking it down as it moves through the, through the digestive tract and you're getting molecules that are coming through which you're using as nutrients for your body. Inflammatory foods tend to break down that gut lining and increase the permeability. So now rather than getting little pieces of nutrients through, you're getting big molecules of let's say gluten or dairy or whatever else through and your body says, what is that? It sees it as a foreign entity so it attacks it. Well this creates an inflammatory response. It's your immune system is attacking something, that's inflammation. That inflammation can then go up to the brain and make you feel foggy, fatigued, lethargic, give you headaches, etc. So certain people that have food sensitivities will notice that after they eat certain things, they get a headache. Or if you ever have a big, you know, pasta carbohydrate filled meal, you feel lethargic and you need to have a nap and all that stuff. That is that response. After concussion, what has been found and, and this is only mostly in animal studies so far, so we still have a long way to go on this, but after a concussion injury, the permeability of the gut lining increases. So even things that may not have bothered you prior to concussion are now creating this constant immune inflammatory response. Because of that, that inflammation is going up to the brain. Then the brain with inflammation in it is causing increased permeability of the gut, which is then causing increased inflammation in the brain. And it just goes in cycles like that. So in order to kind of squash this, one of the ideas or one of the targets behind concussion rehab and treatment is to look at diet and trying to repair the gut lining, right? Things like probiotics and eating an anti-inflammatory diet. Now, anti-inflammatory diet is kind of a misnomer. Generally, what I try to say is just avoid the foods that are pro-inflammatory. And everyone is kind of different on this. So I would suggest doing this and coordinating it through um, a naturopathic doctor, chiropractor, through a functional medicine doctor, somebody like that that has a really good understanding, dietitian even in some cases, has a really good understanding of this process and how to, you know, help you kind of guide you through this because a lot of this stuff is trial and error and you have to try and figure out what it is. The big ones that I'll recommend right off the bat to anyone with a concussion is to avoid gluten, avoid dairy, avoid any refined sugars, right? You can eat fruits and things like that, but avoid any refined sugars or added sugars. Alcohol and eggs, those tend to be the most uh, the things that most people have issues with. And so if we can avoid that, squash that down. And I've had patients before, years and years after having concussion headaches that are constant all the time, we switch up their diet and within a few weeks they're going, oh my God, my energy levels, my sleep, my headaches are down. And all it took was kind of going into this low inflammatory or kind of more of an, um, an elimination type diet, just eating clean for a period of time to try and see how it affects you. But again, always do this in conjunction with a healthcare professional that can help to guide you through it. Uh, next on the list is migraines. 
people often classify themselves or they get misdiagnosed as having migraine headaches just because they have a really bad headache, right? People will say, oh, my headache, it's, it's a migraine because it's bad. Just because the headache is bad doesn't mean or necessarily classify that it's a migraine headache. A migraine headache is a specific type of headache and there's characterization patterns to it. So I'm gonna go through kind of what the theory of migraine is, but then also some of the characterizations of it so you can kind of better understand whether or not you have migraines, whether or not you have something else. Uh, because the treatment is very different. And if you're getting treated for migraines and it's not working, you probably don't have migraines, right? And that's what I'm gonna try and help you figure out. The old theory behind migraines was a vascular theory. So there's two types of migraines, well there's more than that, but there's migraine with aura and migraine without aura. Migraine with aura is you see something or have some sort of what they call a prodrome, something to indicate that the migraine is going to happen. I have migraines with aura and usually they follow extreme exertion. So, and my aura is visual. So I will start to see a scintillating color pattern happen in my visual field. And I can't look at it because it's always moving away. So I can never look at it. It's a scintillating color pattern. Almost looks like light shining through those crystals, you know, where it puts a little rainbow color on the floor. And it'll be scintillating, meaning it'll be moving in my visual field, but I'll never be able to see it it gradually increases in size to the point where I am completely blind on my right side. It's scary when you're driving home from a hockey game going, what the hell is going on? And it'll get to the point where I can't even see my hand. Like I'll have my arm, Sam's got her mouth gaping open listening to this story right now, but I'll have my hand out here and if I wiggle my fingers, I can see my fingers wiggling. But then when I get to here, I can only see my arm up to here. But then my brain fills in the rest of the pattern so it looks normal to me visually because that's what your brain does. It fills in voids in your visual field so that you don't see your blind spots. They just seem like background. So I'll bring my hand over and my hand is gone. And it's like just an absence of vision but it's, there's still stuff there. It's very weird. But then after what I know, I go, okay, I'm gonna get a migraine. And 20 minutes to half an hour later, Aura goes away, my vision returns, and then boom, headache happens and it sucks. So I have an aura, so I know when I'm gonna get it, so I start popping you know, Advil and all sorts of medication before the headache starts. But interestingly, I changed my diet and I haven't had a migraine in a year and a half. And I was getting them frequently. So that's another thing where migraines might be inflammation-based as well. Uh, anyway, moving on. The new th so the old theory behind why this would happen is it was a vascular theory. They thought that the aura was due to constriction of blood vessels in the brain. You had a vasospasm, you weren't getting enough blood, and you kind of had almost this mini stroke-like scenario that happened because you weren't getting blood flow. So that's the aura. Then you would have a hyperperfusion where the blood vessels would all dilate in response and then you'd get boom, blood flow coming in and you'd get this pounding headache because it's vascular. There's now blood flow pumping through like crazy and it hurts. So that was the old theory. The new theory is actually very similar to the pathophysiology of concussion 
What the aura is thought to be is the excitatory phase. So concussion has an excitatory phase where there's a, an electrical storm that happens, and then it has what's called the spreading depression where the energy levels in the cells drop down, and that is kind of the persistent symptoms that can happen over the next few weeks. Migraine theory now is that the aura is the excitation, so you have this firing and discharge of neurons and then the headache itself is the spreading depression phase. You can also have migraines without aura. So people will have migraine headaches that don't necessarily see anything or have any. Other people have aura. I know somebody that has aura where they throw up repeatedly. They just know that, okay, I'm getting a headache. Or people will lose, they'll, their arm will go numb. And that's their aura. And they know, oh my God, I'm gonna get this headache. So it's really weird, it's really scary, um, but it's, it's something that's just a part of those migraine headaches. Specific criteria for migraine are headaches that last between four and 72 hours. It's fairly short. I'll have patients come in and say, I've had a migraine for the past three weeks. No, you have not, because that's not a migraine headache. A migraine has a specific beginning and end. You can get them, like usually people will get them two or three times a month or something like that, and there'll be a, a, a burst. You'll have it for four hours or six hours or whatever, up to maybe a day or two or three, and that's kind of the end of the road. You did not have a migraine for two weeks. It's not a migraine headache. It kind of almost rules it out. They will be unilateral, so generally one-sided and generally they will be um, on the same side. Um, you can have bilateral, meaning both sides. Um, they'll have a pulsating quality, so they won't just be a steady headache, right? People have this like this kind of splitting, constant aching headache. That is not migraine, it's a pulsatile, throbbing type quality. Uh, it can be associated with nausea and vomiting, uh, and it can be associated with light and noise sensitivity, but a lot of headaches are as well. So that's migraine. Typically the treatment is medication-based. Uh, sometimes you have to take medication prophylactically every day to avoid it happening. Other times you just take really strong medication when you get the aura and you know it's coming. Uh, or if you the first onset, as soon as you see it coming or whatever, as soon as you know you pop medication. The other less commonly recommended treatment though which I found worked for me. I was prescribed the medication. I never ended up having to take it because I changed my diet and so far, knock on wood, I haven't had one in a year and a half. So awesome. My last one actually put me in the, I went to Emerge. I thought I was having a stroke because my aura lasted for a long time and I could not see out of the right side of my visual field. I was actually with Taylor. Oh my gosh. I was. Did he help you or? No, he was useless. <laughs> he was useless, no. Um, yeah, so. The next one on the list, which I feel is probably the most common, is what's called a cervicogenic headache. So it's a headache that comes from the muscles and joints of your neck. And it refers pain into the head. So the head and the neck come from the same area of development when you're a fetus. So it's come, it, they come from the same kind of little pocket that develops into your head and neck. So they share a lot of common pathways. Your neck tells you a lot about where you are in space and it also can refer pain into your head. And depending on which muscles are involved, it can refer pain to specific areas. So based on the location of a patient's headache, I often know what muscles and joints I'm going to check to be able to rule in or rule out a specific type of headache. 
with a concussion, you also will get a whiplash injury pretty much 100% of the time. Concussion takes a lot of force to happen. Whiplash takes a small amount of force to happen. Anytime you're gonna get a large amount of force delivered to the head, you're gonna get that small amount delivered to the neck. So studies have shown this that 100% of the time, every person that gets a concussion will also have a whiplash that's associated with it or some sort of neck injury. You may not even feel the neck injury because right now you're focused on your head. But the symptoms of whiplash and the symptoms of concussion are the exact same. Headaches, dizziness, nauseousness, uh, balance impairments, visual disturbances. Your neck tells your brain a lot about where you are in space. It coordinates movement of your eyes. So whenever your eyes are moving, the muscles of your neck are also moving in coordination of those eye movements. And so this communication is happening throughout your sensory systems. So the neck can cause dizziness and the neck can also cause headaches. Um, and listen to, the, listen to the characterization of cervicogenic headaches. Pain is generally unilateral, meaning one-sided, same as migraine. Pain can also be accompanied by nauseousness, vomiting, photo and phonophobia, meaning light and noise sensitivity, same exact qualifications as migraine headaches. And this one can last weeks to months if it goes untreated. So those of you that say I've had a migraine for three weeks, you likely have a cervicogenic headache, meaning a headache that is coming from tightness in the muscles and joints of your neck. When a muscle is tight and sore, you'll, you'll, you might feel it in that muscle, but you also might feel it up here. So right now, this headache that I woke up with this morning that's in my front right temporal and frontal area when I push on the right side suboccipital muscles and my C2, C3 joint right there, I get the headache to increase right here, okay? There's nothing wrong with right here. It's right here. And I push on that and I feel that what's called referred pain. So referred pain is pain that's felt somewhere else, but the origin's actually in a distant or you know other part of the body. The brain is weird like that. It's not good at picking up this deep aching pain and where it's coming from. Um, so treatment for these types of headaches is manual therapy, getting treatment of the soft tissue. So active release type therapy is something I do with my patients quite frequently. Another one is acupuncture. So treating certain muscles, right? And like I said, certain muscles will have different referral patterns. So if it's this muscle right here, you might have pain in the face. If it's the suboccipitals, you might have pain in the forehead or even right behind the eye. I guarantee a bunch of people listening to this right now saying, I have headaches that are like in my eye and they'll get MRIs and CT scans and they'll be thinking they have some sort of tumor in their eye and it'll be crazy. But yet all it is is these suboccipital muscles. And if you treat those muscles, the pain will go away. Um, it's quite easy to do. Another thing is rehabilitation. So a good you know, PT or a chiropractor um, can you know, provide you with some rehab for this to help A, strengthen the neck because a weak neck is also a tight neck and a dysfunctional neck, but also for proprioception meaning like you know movement of the muscles and joints to make sure that the the things are coordinated and you're moving in a proper way because if you're not that creates tightness in certain areas which will then refer pain into the head this is just food for thoughts i just had this thought come into my brain the brain itself cannot feel pain so oftentimes people with concussion will have headaches and they'll think it's their brain 
The brain, however, does not have pain sensors in it. So you could take off somebody's skull and poke their brain and, you know, make them do funny things, but they won't feel pain in the brain because the brain doesn't have pain fiber. So how can we say or assume that a concussion-related headache is due to the brain itself experiencing pain? Because the brain itself doesn't have any sensors to sense pain. So the headaches are likely due to other you know, possibilities. That's why I think that a lot of them are neck-related uh, and most people don't really um, think about it. So. You have tight muscles, restricted joints, treatment is soft tissue therapy, acupuncture, rehabilitation, manipulation of the joints, so having the joints adjusted. The other treatments, which is where I'm gonna get into this other part, are injections. So people will recommend that you get a trigger point injection, which means to inject an anesthetic. So you take something like a lidocaine or a bupivacaine, something that is an anesthetic, and inject it into the tight muscle you'll numb the muscle and the headache may go away. All right, so that's trigger point injections. The other one that's become a little bit, I wouldn't say commonplace, and there's really no research on it, there's a couple case studies that have been done on it, is Botox. For some reason this is being recommended, probably because it's not covered by government insurance and you end up having to pay out of pocket to a physician, you know, a few hundred bucks to inject some Botox into you. That's probably where the recommendations come from. Now, Botox. The idea is that the the, the Botox toxin, uh, which is used for you know cosmetic stuff and wrinkles and things like that, the reason it's it's beneficial for that is that it will relax the muscles. It basically goes in and kind of paralyzes certain muscles. So that when you smile or things like that, you won't get those you know, crow's feet wrinkle lines because those muscles that do that are basically paralyzed. Um, so the idea is that if your neck is tight and the muscles and joints in your neck are causing headaches, if we go in there and paralyze a tight muscle, that will relieve the headaches. And it does. But, and there's a big but here, I've only have personal my experience with my patients that have done it and had it recommended and have gone through with the procedure have only ever had very negative side effects that have come out of it and it's mostly dizziness because the neck tells you a lot about where you are in space the the muscles in your neck are constantly they have these little sensors in them called muscle spindles and they sense tension in muscles so when I turn my head to the left, for example, I'll have tension that will increase in these muscles and these muscles, and that will increase the frequency that the muscle spindles fire at. And that'll tell my brain where you are in space. My brain then will get that signal and it'll ask my eyes, what are you seeing? And it'll ask my vestibular system, what are you guys picking up? And all three of those, if those three messages are saying the same thing, I feel okay. I don't feel dizzy, I don't feel off. Now. When you inject something like Botox into a muscle or even trigger point injections in some cases, you're numbing, if, if you do a trigger point injection, you're basically numbing the signal from that muscle. So now when you turn your head, there's no firing frequency happening from those muscles. So now the signals going to my brain are missing certain components of information. And now the person starts to feel dizzy when they do certain movements 
because they're not getting all the signals there. And with Botox, it paralyzes the muscle for months. You know, two to three months is how long this could last. And with that one, it's just paralyzed the muscle. So the signal is still going, but the signal is that nothing is moved and there's no tension. Your brain needs to know where the tension is and how things are operating in order to feel at ease and where you are in space. So I've had a few patients now that have gone through with it and every single one of them will say, my headaches feel better, but I'm so dizzy, it's insane. And you can't do anything for them because it's cervicogenic dizziness, it's dizziness coming from their neck, but the only reason is because these muscles are paralyzed now. So it makes it very difficult to do anything to help them. They're just, you're kind of stuck. I've had one patient who was actually bedridden for two months after because she had Botox injections because of headaches. And now, even a couple years later, she's still very dizzy because it screws up the function of how your neck moves and operates in space. So there's only been a couple studies done on it, on Botox, and it's only looking at a case series where they grab two or three people or 10 people and say, let's try it. And they'll say, you know, people, their headaches went away. But there's other possible side effects to having the injection. So. The way that I see it and the way that I manage my patients is I'm going to go with the, you know, the, the more functional pathways first. I'm going to do the rehab. I'm going to do the tissue work. I'm going to do the acupuncture. I'm going to get their neck moving properly and optimally functioning because once the signals from the neck are regulated and they're normal because there isn't tight muscles pulling things in different direction and giving your brain altered signals, you feel at ease and the headaches will go away. In I think maybe in my you know six years of doing this, I've maybe referred one or two people for trigger point injections, and I've kind of cautioned people away from Botox until we understand a little bit more about it and what the side effects may be. So that's my take on it. Again, um, there just needs to be more research on this, I think, before people start jumping to it, but really consider the other possibilities of dizziness because I've had it in, in my patients personally, and I think the reason is because we're paralyzing the muscles and your brain needs those signals and they need certain tensions to know where you are in space. And without it, you're a, you're a disaster. You're, you're potentially bedridden or you know things are all messed up. Any questions on any of that? Right, so there's there's a fourth <laughs> there's a fourth person <laughs> in the past you know two years that have done this that are telling me that they felt extremely dizzy after doing it. So I've had five DMs in the past couple of weeks asking about whether or not people should do it. I'm not going to comment on whether or not you should do it. I just think that you should consider all the potential side effects before doing something like that. And this is one that's not very frequently mentioned by most doctors when they recommend it, but it's something that I've had in you know now five for five patients i've never had one patient tell me that they did it and didn't have dizziness so that's that's something okay cheers guys thanks for joining us if you have anything you want me to talk about next week let me know <laughs> we're doing these like day of going like hey what should we talk about all right let's do it anyway cheers guys bye thank you for listening to the complete concussion management podcast if you like the show please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.